0: SECTION 59 OF CURIOSITIES OF LITERATURE, VOLUME 3 THIS IS A LIBRIVOX RECORDING. ALL LIBRIVOX RECORDINGS ARE IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. FOR MORE INFORMATION OR TO VOLUNTEER, PLEASE VISIT LIBRIVOX.ORG. RECORDING BY CORINNE LEPAGE CURIOSITIES OF LITERATURE, VOLUME 3 BY ISAAC Disraeli. SECRET HISTORY OF CHARLES I AND HIS FIRST PARLIAMENTS, PART 3 in a manuscript letter it is said that the house of commons sat four days without speaking or doing anything on the first of may secretary cook delivered a message asking whether they would rely upon the king's word this question was followed by a long silence several speeches are reported in the letters of the times which are not in rushworth sir nathaniel rich observed that confident that he was of the royal word what did any indefinite word ascertain pym said we have his majesty's coronation oath to maintain the laws of england what need we then take his word he proposed to move whether he should take the king's word or no this was resisted by secretary cook what would they say in foreign parts if the people of england would not trust their king he desired the house to call pym to order on which pym replied truly mr speaker i am just of the same opinion as i was Vis-a-vis that the King's oath was as powerful as his word. Sir John Elliot moved that it be put to the question, because they that would have it do urge us to that point. Sir Edward Coke on this occasion made a memorable speech, of which the following passage is not given in Rushworth. We sit now in Parliament, and therefore must take His Majesty's word no otherwise than in a parliamentary way, that is, of a matter agreed on by both Houses his majesty sitting on his throne in his robes with his crown on his head and sceptre in his hand and in full parliament and his royal assent being entered upon record in perpetuum re memoriam this was the royal word of a king in parliament and not a word delivered in a chamber and out of the mouth of a secretary at the second hand therefore i motion that the house of commons mor majorum. Should draw up a petition de draict to his Majesty, which, being confirmed by both Houses and assented unto by his Majesty, will be as firm an act as any. Not that I distrust the King, but that I cannot take his trust but in a parliamentary way. Footnote: These speeches are entirely drawn from those manuscript letters to which I have frequently referred. Coke's may be substantially found in Rushworth, but without a single expression as here given and a footnote in this speech of sir edward coke we find the first mention in the legal style of the ever memorable petition of right which two days after was finished the reader must pursue its history among the writers of opposite parties on tuesday june 5th a royal message announced that on the 11th the present sessions would close this utterly disconcerted the commons religious men considered it as a judicial visitation for the sins of the people others raged with suppressed feelings they counted up all the disasters which had of late occurred all which were charged to one man they knew not at a moment so urgent when all their liberties seemed at stake whether the commons should fly to the lords or to the king sir john elliot said that as they intended to furnish his majesty with money it was proper that he should give them time to supply him with counsel he was renewing his old attacks on the duke when he was suddenly interrupted by the speaker who starting from the chair declared that he was commanded not to suffer him to proceed eliot sat down in sullen silence on wednesday sir edward coke broke the ice of the debate that man he said of the duke is the grievance of grievances as for going to the lord's he added that is not via regia our liberties are impeached it is our concern on thursday the vehement cry of coke against buckingham was followed up as says a letter writer when one good hound recovers the scent the rest come in with a full cry footnote the popular opinion is well expressed in the following lines preserved in sloane m s eight hundred and twenty six when only one doth rule and guide the ship Who neither card nor compass knew before, the master pilot and the rest asleep, the stately ship is split upon the shore, but they awaking start up, stare, and cry, Who did this fault? Not I, nor I, nor I. So fares it with a great and wealthy state, not governed by the master but his mate. End of footnote. A sudden message from the king absolutely forbade them to asperse any of his majesty's ministers, otherwise his majesty would instantly dissolve them. This felt like a thunderbolt. It struck terror and alarm, and at the instant the House of Commons was changed into a scene of tragical melancholy. All the opposite passions of human nature, all the national evils which were one day to burst on the country, seemed, on a sudden, concentrated in this single spot some were seen weeping some were expostulating and some in awful prophecy were contemplating the future ruin of the kingdom while others of more ardent daring were reproaching the timid quieting the terrified and infusing resolution into the despairing many attempted to speak but were so strongly affected that their very utterance failed them the vulnerable coke overcome by his feelings when he rose to speak found his learned eloquence falter on his tongue. He sat down, and tears were seen on his aged cheeks. The name of the public enemy of the kingdom was repeated, till the speaker, with tears covering his face, declared he could no longer witness such a spectacle of woe in the commons of England, and requested leave of absence for half an hour. The speaker hastened to the king to inform him of the state of the house. They were preparing a vote against the duke, for being an arch-traitor and an arch-enemy to king and kingdom and were busied on their remonstrance when the speaker on his return after an absence of two hours delivered his majesty's message that they should adjourn till the next day this was an awful interval of time many trembled for the issue of the next morning one letter-writer calls it that black and doleful thursday and another writing before the house met observes what we shall expect this morning god of heaven knows we shall meet timely charles probably had been greatly affected by the report of the speaker on the extraordinary state into which the whole house had been thrown for on friday the royal message imported that the king had never any intention of barring them from their right but only to avoid scandal that his ministers should not be accused for their counsel to him and still he hoped that all christendom might notice a sweet parting between him and his people this message quieted the house but did not suspend their preparations for a remonstrance which they had begun on the day they were threatened with a dissolution on saturday while they were still occupied on the remonstrance unexpectedly At four o'clock, the king came to Parliament, and the commons were called up. Charles spontaneously came to reconcile himself to Parliament. The king now gave his second answer to the petition of right. He said, My maxim is that the people's liberties strengthen the king's prerogative, and the king's prerogative is to defend the people's liberties. Read your petition, and you shall have an answer that I am sure will please you. They desired to have the ancient form of their ancestors, soit droit fait comme il est désiré, and not as the king had before given it, with any observation on it. Charles now granted this, declaring that his second answer to the petition in no wise differed from his first. But you now see how ready I have shown myself to satisfy your demands. I have done my part, wherefore, if this parliament have not a happy conclusion, the sin is yours i am free from it popular gratitude is at least as vociferous as it is sudden both houses returned the king's acclamations of joy everyone seemed to exult at the happy change which a few days had effected in the fate of the kingdom everywhere the bells rung bonfires were kindled an universal holiday was kept through the town and spread to the country but an ominous circumstance has been registered by a letter-writer the common people who had caught the contagious happiness imagined that all this public joy was occasioned by the king's consenting to commit the duke to the tower charles had been censured even by hume for his evasions and delays in granting his assent to the petition of right but now either the parliament had conquered the royal unwillingness or the king was zealously inclined on reconciliation yet the joy of the commons did not outlast the bonfires on the streets they resumed their debates as if they had never before touched on the subjects they did not account for the feelings of the man whom they addressed as the sovereign they set up a remonstrance against the duke and introduced his mother into it as a patroness of popery charles declared that after having granted the famous petition he had not expected such a return as this remonstrance how acceptable it is he afterwards said every man may judge no wise man can justify it after the reading of the remonstrance the duke fell on his knees desiring to answer for himself but charles no way relaxed in showing his personal favour the duke was often charged with actions and expressions of which unquestionably he was not always guilty and we can more fairly decide on some points relating to charles and the favourite for we have a clearer notion of them than his contemporaries The active spirits in the commons were resolved to hunt down the game to the death for they now struck out as the king calls it one of the chief maintenances of my crown in tonnage and poundage the levying of which they now declared was a violation of the liberties of the people this subject again involved legal discussions and another remonstrance they were in the act of reading it when the king suddenly came down to the house sent for the speaker and prorogued the parliament i am forced to end this session said charles some few hours before i meant being not willing to receive any more remonstrances to which i must give a harsh answer there was at least as much of sorrow as of anger in this closing speech buckingham once more was to offer his life for the honour of his master and to court popularity it is well known with what exterior fortitude charles received the news of the duke's assassination this imperturbable majesty of his mind insensibility it was not never deserted him on many similar occasions there was no indecision no feebleness in his conduct and that extraordinary event was not suffered to delay the expedition the king's personal industry astonished all the men in office one writes that the king had done more in six weeks than in the duke's time had done in six months the death of buckingham caused no change the king left every man to his own charge but took the general direction into his own hands in private charles deeply mourned the loss of buckingham he gave no encouragement to his enemies the king called him his martyr and declared the world was greatly mistaken in him for it was thought that the favorite had ruled his majesty but it was far otherwise for that the duke had been to him a faithful and obedient servant such were the feelings and ideas of the unfortunate charles i which it is necessary to become acquainted with to judge of few have possessed the leisure or the disposition to perform this historical duty involved as it is in the history of our passions if ever the man shall be viewed as well as the monarch the private history of charles i will form one of the most pathetic of biographies Footnote. I have given, Volume 2, page 336, the secret history of Charles I and his queen, where I have traced the firmness and independence of his character. In another article will be found as much of the secret history of the Duke of Buckingham as I have been enabled to acquire. End of footnote. All the foreign expeditions of Charles I were alike disastrous. The vast genius of Richelieu, at its meriden had paled our ineffectual star the dreadful surrender of rochelle had sent back our army and navy baffled and disgraced and buckingham had timely perished to save one more reproach one more political crime attached to his name such failures did not improve the temper of the times but the most brilliant victory would not have changed the fate of charles nor allied the fiery spirits in the commons who as charles said not satisfied in hearing complainers had erected themselves into inquisitors after complaints parliament met the king's speech was conciliatory he acknowledged that the exaction of the duties of the customs was not a right which he derived from his hereditary prerogative but one which he enjoyed as the gift of his people these duties as yet had not indeed been formally confirmed by parliament but they had never been refused to the sovereign The king closed with a fervent ejaculation that the session, begun with confidence, might end with a mutual good understanding. Footnote. To conclude, said the king, let us not be jealous one of the other's actions. End of footnote. The shade of Buckingham was no longer cast between Charles I and the Commons, and yet we find that their dread and dear sovereign was not allowed any repose on the throne the new demon of national discord religion in a metaphysical garb reared its distracted head this evil spirit had been raised by the conduct of the court divines whose political sermons with their attempts to return to the more solemn ceremonies of the romish church alarmed some tender consciences it served as a masked battery for the patriotic party to change their ground at will without slackening their fire when the king urged for the duties of his customs he found that he was addressing a committee sitting for religion sir john elliot threw out a singular expression alluding to some of the bishops whom he called masters of ceremonies he confessed that some ceremonies were commendable such as that we should stand up at the repetition of the creed to testify the resolution of our hearts to defend the religion we profess and in some churches they did not only stand upright but with their swords drawn his speech was a spark that fell into a well-laid train scarcely can we conceive the enthusiastic temper of the house of commons at that moment when after some debate they entered a vow to preserve the articles of religion established by parliament in the thirteenth year of our late queen elizabeth and this vow was immediately followed up by a petition to the king for a fast for the increasing miseries of the reformed churches abroad parliaments are liable to have their passions some of these enthusiasts were struck by a panic not perhaps warranted by the danger of jesuits and armenians the king answered them in good humor observing however on the state of the reformed abroad that fighting would do them more good than fasting He granted them their fast but they would now grant no return for now they presented a declaration to the king that tonnage and poundage must give precedency to religion the king's answer still betrays no ill temper he confessed that he did not think that religion was in so much danger as they affirmed he reminds them of tonnage and poundage I do not so much desire it out of greediness of the thing as out of desire to put an end to those questions that arise between me and some of my subjects. Never had the king been more moderate in his claims, or more tender in his style, and never had the commons been more fierce and never in truth so utterly inexorable. Often kings are tyrannical, and sometimes are parliaments a body corporate with the infection of passion may perform acts of injustice equally with the individual who abuses the power with which he is invested it was insisted that charles should give up the receivers of the customs who were denounced as capital enemies to the king and kingdom while those who submitted to the duties were declared guilty as accessories when sir john Eliot was pouring forth invectives against some courtiers however they may have merited the blast of his eloquence he was sometimes interrupted and sometimes cheered for the stinging personalities the timid speaker refusing to put the question suffered a severe reprimand from selden if you will not put it we must sit still and thus we shall never be able to do anything the house adjourned in great heat the dark prognostic of the next meeting which Sir Symonds Duse has remarked in his diary as the most gloomy, sad, and dismal day for England that happened for five hundred years. On this fatal day, the Speaker still refusing to put the question and announcing the King's command for adjournment, Sir John elliot stood up. Footnote Monday, 2nd of March, 1629. and a footnote. The speaker attempted to leave the chair, but two members who had placed themselves on each side forcibly kept him down. Elliot, who had prepared a short declaration, flung down a paper on the floor, crying out that it might be read. His party vociferated for the reading; others that it should not. A sudden tumult broke out. Corriton, a fervent patriot, struck another member, and many laid their hands on their swords. Footnote it was imagined out of doors that swords had been drawn for a welsh page running in great haste when he heard the noise to the door cried out i pray you let her in let her in to give her master his sword manuscript letter end of footnote. shall we said one be sent home as we were last sessions turned off like scattered sheep the weeping trembling speaker still persisting in what he held to be his duty was dragged to and fro by opposite parties, but neither he nor the clerk would read the paper, though the speaker was bitterly reproached by his kinsman, Sir Peter Heyman, as the disgrace of his country and a blot to a noble family. Eliot, finding the house so strongly divided, undauntedly snatching up the paper, said, I shall then express that by my tongue which this paper should have done. Denzel Halls assumed the character of speaker, putting the question— it was returned by the acclamations of the party. The doors were locked and the keys laid on the table. The king sent for the sergeant and mace, but the messenger could obtain no admittance. The usher of the black rod met no more regard. The king then ordered out his guard. In the meanwhile the protest was completed. The door was flung open. The rush of the members was so impetuous that the crowd carried away among them the sergeant and the usher in the confusion and riot many of the members were struck by horror amidst this conflict it was a sad image of the future several of the patriots were committed to the tower the king on dissolving this parliament which was the last till the memorable long parliament gives us at least his idea of it it is far from me to judge all the house alike guilty for there are there as dutiful subjects as any in the world it being but some few vipers among them that did cast this mist of undutifulness over most of their eyes at the time many undoubtedly considered that it was a mere faction of the house sir simmons dues was certainly no politician but unquestionably his ideas were not peculiar to himself of the last third parliament he delivers this opinion in his diary I cannot deem but the greater part of the house were morally honest men, but these were the least guilty of the fatal breach, being only misled by some other Machiavellian politics, who seemed zealous for the liberty of the commonwealth, and by that means, in the moving of their outward freedom, drew the votes of those good men to their side. End of footnote. Thus I have traced, step by step, the secret history of charles i and his early parliaments i have entered into their feelings while i have supplied new facts to make everything as present and as true as my faithful diligence could repeat the tale it was necessary that i should sometimes judge of the first race of our patriots as some of their contemporaries did but it was impossible to avoid correcting these notions by the more enlarged views of their posterity this is the privilege of an historian and the philosophy of his art there is no apology for the king nor any declamation for the subject were we only to decide by the final results of this great conflict of which what we have here narrated is but the faint beginning we should confess that sir john elliot and his party were the first fathers of our political existence and we should not withhold from them the inexpressible gratitude of a nation's freedom but human infirmity mortifies us in the noblest pursuits of man and we must be taught this penitential and chastising wisdom the story of our patriots is involved charles appears to have been lowering those high notions of his prerogative which were not peculiar to him and was throwing himself on the bosom of his people the severe and unrelenting conduct of sir john Eliot, his prompt eloquence and bold invective well fitted him for the leader of a party he was the lodestone, drawing together the loose particles of iron. Never sparing in the monarch the errors of man, never relinquishing his royal prey, which he had fastened on, Eliot, with Dr. Turner and some others, contributed to make Charles disgusted with all parliaments. Without any dangerous concessions there was more than one moment when they might have reconciled the sovereign to themselves, and not have driven him to the fatal resource of attempting to reign without a parliament. Footnote. Since the publication of the present article, I have composed my Commentaries on the Life and Reign of Charles I in five volumes. End of footnote. End of section 59. Recording by Corinne Le Page.